Charles here. Welcome to the 69th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Alex Hansen as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars Series. But I think one of the things I really want to emphasize is that a lot of times people think that supporting single parents is going to cost extra money or take a lot of resources. But what I've found in my research is like for many single moms, they just want someone to ask how they're doing and actually care about the answer. And I think that's something that a lot of us want as humans. You'll hear more from Alex in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to the Young Rhetorician Conference, which is going to be held June 17th through 19th, 2021. This year, the proposal theme is Riding the Waves of Change. The Young Rhetoricians Conference, or YRC, on College Rhetoric and Composition, Part Conference and Part Retreat, welcomes ideas for encouraging and enabling students in their reading, writing, and conversation, and in multimodal production, to function as active and creative contributors to the discourse of the classroom learning community. Proposals for workshops and presentations will be accepted until Saturday, May 1st, 2021. In keeping with the tradition and spirit of the conference, uh, they encourage proposals for sessions that are interactive and show the interplay of theory and practice, not privileging one over the other. You may submit a proposal for either a 90-minute session, two or more people, or for an individual presentation uh, for 30 or 45 minutes, all of which should include 10 to 15 minutes of participant discussion or Q&A time. The sessions will be assigned by conference planners. And for more information or to submit a proposal, visit youngrhetoriciansconference.com. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series is an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. And don't forget that this season, we introduced the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. More on that later. So far this season, we have heard from scholars from all over, including from Christian Brothers University, Iowa State University, the University of Colorado, Florida International University, the University of Delaware, and Barry College. Today, we talk to Alex Hansen. Alex Hansen, she, her, hers, is currently a PhD candidate in composition and cultural rhetoric at Syracuse University. Her research interests include composition pedagogy, WPA, institutional rhetoric, language politics, and feminist rhetorics. Her dissertation project, Not Appropriate for Children, 
a look at the composition practices and rhetorical strategies of single moms in academia, explores how single moms' parental identities shape their composition work, as well as how they navigate academia. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alex Hansen. Tell us, who are you? What's your name, your title, and your institution, and your role there? What do you do? So uh, my name is Alex Hansen. I am a doctoral candidate at Syracuse University in their Composition and Cultural Rhetoric Program. And um, right now, I'm a Humanity-Centered Dissertation Fellow. So I've been working on my dissertation through that fellowship for the past year. Okay, that's very cool. Tell me a little bit more about this fellowship. Um, how does it work and what has it allowed you to do throughout your dissertation process? Yeah, so um, it's a one-year fellowship through the Humanities Center and there are two graduate students that get it every year within Syracuse. So there's um, the other person who has it this semester is in philosophy. Um, and so it Typically, you know, you have this beautiful office that you can go to and work um, and get to build relationships with people outside your program, which I've kind of been able to do a little bit, fortunately, with um, Carolyn as the other person who has it. But um, it, what it's really allowed me to do is to add things to my dissertation that I hadn't thought I would originally. So once I found out I did this, because my research looks at single moms in academia, as you can imagine, the pandemic really has shifted uh, what single moms' lives are like now in higher education. And so it let me uh, do a survey of single moms and what their lives are like right now, um, and then incorporate that into my dissertation. And um, yeah, and it also um, allows you to do a presentation about your research that people can, now they can watch, and then you do like a Q&A session. So it's good preparation in that sense for the job market. That sounds like an exceptional opportunity. And I'm excited to talk to you about your dissertation project. Uh, which sounds not only important, okay, they're all important, but this is really okay. timely, and I'm excited to di dive in a bit more. Before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your experience in education. You got your bachelor's degree at William Smith College, um, and I'll admit, I've never heard of William Smith College. Um, where is that college, and uh, tell us a little bit about your time there. Yeah, it's a small liberal arts college. It's in Geneva, New York, which is um, in the Finger Lakes region. And so it's kind of in between Rochester and Syracuse, but it's also near Ithaca. It's about 45 minutes to an hour from each of those places. Um, and admittedly, I hadn't heard of it either until I went there. Um, I went to a really small rural high school, and so I didn't know a lot about like the college options. Um, but when I was when I was in high school, I played field hockey, and Hobart and William Smith reached out to me and were like, "Hey, you want to come play field hockey for us?" And I was like, "Sure." Um, and also, they were going to give me the most financial aid, and so I was like, "That sounds great." Uh, I didn't end up playing field hockey for them, but <laughs> but I did. Um, end up majoring in writing and rhetoric there, which was something I had never known was possible. I thought I wanted to be an English teacher. And then I started 
I think I did that for a semester. Um, and I just realized like middle school English education was not for me. And I also learned through my experience, my first semester there that my writing really needed some work. So I actually got into writing and rhetoric because I took an introductory course to help develop my writing skills more. And I just really loved the way that you thought about like the whole writing situation, um, the rhetorical situation and all that stuff. I really enjoyed like the context and sort of trying to figure out what people were thinking behind their writing. Um, and it's a really great school. It's very small, which I really liked. Um, and I had really wonderful instructors, you know, who I still stay in touch with today, which is really nice. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I found it and it worked really well for me. So Geneva, New York, that's where William Smith is. You mentioned you went to a rural high school. Are you also from Geneva? Or where are you from? No. So I'm originally from Morrisville, New York. Um, the only thing, they, there's a SUNY school there. Um, and I used to joke or like when people would ask, I'd be like, oh, there's more cows than people. Um, like, I mean, it was, yeah, it was very small. There were 63 people in my graduating high school class. Um and so Geneva was about two hours from there. My high school, the land was donated by a farmer. And so it was actually in a cow pasture. So I have that with you. Um, lots of cows in my high school experience yeah, as well. School. <laughs> oh, and from William Smith, you went on to pursue a master's degree at California State University. I'm going to mess this word up. Where did you get your master's degree at? <laughs> I like that movie to there. <laughs> I, I, I realize I can't say that word, right? <laughs> no, um, it's Stanislaus. Stanislaus. Yes, yes, he's Stanislaus in Turlock, which is in the Central Valley. So it's like in the middle of California. I think just like I learned in California, when you say you're from New York, most people think you mean New York City. And mm -hmm. I learned when I said I went to school in California, most people thought I meant like L.A. Right. <laughs> so right. um, it was not L.A. at all. <laughs> So how was uh, how was your experience at, at 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 CSU Stanislaus? And really, that's a cross country move. How did you wind up there? Yeah, so I knew that I wanted to get my master's degree after I finished um, my bachelor's degree. I worked for a year as an administrative assistant in the English department at Cornell University, and I was surrounded by these really incredible writers and graduate students. And I just thought, you know, I want to be teaching. Um, and I couldn't do that with the education I had. Um, and so I found this program in California and the person I was with at the time found a job out there. And so, um, and the thing was, I knew I wanted to continue to study writing and rhetoric. And I was really interested in TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, when I was an undergrad, I had studied abroad for a semester in Rome, Italy. And that was like, the first time I really understood what it's like to be in a place where your language is not like you can't rely on the language you primarily use to get around. Um, and so when I was at Cornell, I volunteer taught uh, at an English course um, to international fellows there, and I really liked it. And so then when I went to California, I decided um, to study TESOL and the rhetoric of teaching writing. And the program there is small, um, and it was a lot of uh, commuter students. So for me coming from, and, you know, a lot of, um, like, 
non-traditional students. And so um, it was a very different experience than my bachelor's, but I liked it again, because it was a small program um, and it gave me a chance to study two things that I was really interested in. Did you go straight through from your master's program to get the PhD? No. <laughs> <laughs> you did not. Me either. What, yeah. did, what did you do in the interim before you decided to go back and pursue the PhD? Yeah. So um, it, when I finished my PhD, I actually ended back up at my undergrad institution. So um, when I was in undergrad, I was a writing colleague colleague, which is a curriculum based peer tutor, which means like you're a writing tutor that's in the class with the students working with the instructor. Um, and there's a position it's called the writing colleague program coordinator. And so I had always wanted that job when I was an undergrad. It had traditionally been like a transition position for someone who recently got their bachelor's degree before they got their master's. But when I finished, it had become a more professional position. So basically, when I finished my master's degree, they needed someone for that job again. And I thought, I really want that job. I want to come back to the East Coast because my family is all around here and I wanted to be near my family. Um, and so I uh, I started that job and I worked at Hobart and William Smith for five years before I went and got my PhD. And I'd always wanted to, I had wanted to get my PhD. I had wanted to um, go to Syracuse because I was really interested in this cultural rhetoric component they had of the program. Um, but so many people had told me when I finished my master's, it's a really hard program to get into. It's really tough. And so I just, I felt like I wasn't ready um, or quite where I needed to be to be able to feel confident going into it. And I'm not sure anyone is ever fully like, yes, I've got this. Um, but I needed a little bit more. I felt better with a little bit more professional experience um, before I, I did that. It sounds like you have a bevy of administrative experience, of teaching experience, um, and publications that we're going to talk about. Let's start with your teaching. What are you teaching this semester? So I'm not teaching at all. That's another great oh. thing about yeah, the fellowship that I forgot to mention. And um, actually, I was on fellowship last year, too, a different fellowship through the graduate school at Syracuse. And so I haven't taught in like it's weird because I've been teaching since I was in my master's program starting in 2010 um, until for like 10 or 11 years. And now I haven't been teaching for two years um, and it feels very strange. Um, so before, I don't know if you want me to talk about what I was teaching before I went on these fellowships. Sure. Well, I guess what I want to know is what do you like to teach and um, what are some of the things you like to do in the classroom? So that so answering that question might just be talking about what you've taught before. Okay. And also, I don't mean to interrupt, but there's a lot of us who haven't taught at least in the last year, it feels like. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, so I think that this can be some really like however we talk about this could be really beneficial for some of our listeners. Okay. So I I do really like teaching uh introductory writing, first year writing courses. Um I really enjoy working with the students that come into the classroom as first years because I I just I remember being a first year student and how hard that transition was for me and how um, helpful my instructors were to me and feeling like more acclimated to college um, 
And so one of my favorite assignments in the first year writing courses that I teach is this assignment. Uh, it's called a communication guide. And so I'm really interested in language and language politics. And so um, what I have the students do is think about a community that they're a part of that has a particular language that someone outside of that community might not understand. And so um, sometimes that means that someone's um, teaching about like particular terminology. Like I had one student do a whole thing about um, Game of Thrones. And so what they do is they make a guide and it can be any form. They could do like a video or like a, a book or a PowerPoint, whatever they want. And it needs to teach people about the language um, in their community that they choose. And then they also need to do a uh, like mini lesson or a presentation. So like one time I had a student teach us about, uh, he was trying to teach us about baseball scoring, which I don't know if you're like into baseball or you are familiar with baseball scoring at all. A little bit. Yeah. Right. I am not. <laughs> and it was, it felt like it was, completely I, I couldn't understand it and I think it really helped him realize how knowledgeable he was about it because he was like you know when you feel like something is really clear to you and easy to understand and then you start teaching it to other people and they're really confused with what you see is like the easiest step it kind of opens your eyes to that um, and so I like it because it gives a chance for students to share something about themselves while also bringing like the rest of the class into that community. And, like I had one student from Canada, she did a presentation about like Canadian slang and she did this um, little like animated video that was very clever. Um, and, and so it's really exciting to see what they come up with also when they're like given sort of um, free reign to do whatever they like. And then Another, I haven't taught this in a while, but when I was at, um, when I was at Hobart and William Smith, I taught English for multilingual writers. And so, um, part of the goal of that course was to help students become familiar with Geneva. And so one of the assignments they would do is a restaurant review assignment. So they could pick, like they could do the dining hall or they could do a restaurant in the area. Um, and what I really liked about that was like, there were some places that I hadn't been to a while or I didn't think I was I was surprised that like they really enjoyed like one student she loved Ponderosa you know Ponderosa like steakhouse restaurants a sort of buffet style okay. um, and she she wrote about it and I had never thought about it in that way um and it made me really like see the space differently um and it yeah and then you know, it was, it's just interesting to see what they come up with and how they describe, um, describe things and how they sort of explore the community. Along with teaching at Syracuse and other places, <laughs> you served as the assistant director of TA education for two mm -hmm. years. And in this role, you were able to mentor graduate students in introductory writing courses, and uh, you designed and led workshops for, for new TAs and developed support materials led orientation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience doing that, how it shaped you into the scholar researcher that you are t today and teacher today. And and what are the best practices for, for, for graduate students leading graduate students? Yeah. So, um, I and think that's a lot. If you, yeah. if, <laughs> if you want to parse it out. <laughs> yeah. So I think the first part of the question was about 
how it shaped me as a teacher scholar. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the second part was about like best practices of mentoring or working with graduate students. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I think that this is a, it is a good question. I want to start with the second part because I think that feels a little bit easier for me. Um, I think one of the things with mentoring other graduate students and also, um, so these are MFA and MA students um, in the English department. And so um, one of the things I think is really trying to like meet people where they are. And so what I mean by that is like, really taking the time to meet with them one-on-one -on -one and to listen to what their needs and their concerns are and what they need support with, but also what they feel like they're doing really well in. Um, and I think that sort of trusting that they, um, that they have like their ideas are really um, valuable and interesting. And I could, cause I think one of the things that I, learned through working with um, other graduate students is ways to approach teaching. Like I don't have a creative writing background and a lot of the students, the graduate students I worked with were creative writers. Um, and so they'd incorporate like creative writing pieces into their classes. Like one student, um, he brought in a creative writing piece by Mary Carr um, and he showed how her revision process had been over time before the article got published um, and part of that was because he was taking a class with her at the same time and so I thought that was really interesting to think about or um, they were we have an intermediate uh, writing requirement and it had they have different themes and so one is like writing in the arts and I remember one student um, had focused on this artist who did these really interesting things with glass and had made like this house with like wine bottle, um, sort of glass wine bottles throughout it and just bringing those things in that I hadn't thought about before. Um, and I think the other thing too is really doing your best to like support them when they need it. So what I mean by that is like, for example, I had some students and I, this is the graduate students that I was mentoring and primarily, um, the female graduate students were getting these grade challenges. So students were getting, weren't happy with their grades and so they'd push back. And so trying to recognize where that might be coming from, what's causing that, and just validating that a lot of times um, instructors, particularly women, particularly women of color, um, experience uh, evaluations and pushback from students in ways that other instructors don't. Um, and then, um, so yeah, just supporting them in a lot of different ways. And then I think the way that it's shaped me and as a teacher and scholar is, um, it's really helped me to know, like, to ask questions of people to try and understand or to learn more about where they're coming from, um, and what they're, like goals are what they want um, instead of just assuming and, and telling them things. So like listening first, I guess. I appreciate you indulging me um, with that question as someone who worked, you know, as a, a mentor of graduate students in my W in my writing program for a bit, actually at the same time you were. So that's something that's super important to me and, and I don't get to talk about it enough on the podcast. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. Let's talk about your dissertation project, um, which is, like I mentioned earlier, timely, but it really seems like exceptional work and exceptional work that's been well-received in the field. Your dissertation title is Not Appropriate for Children, a look at composition practices and rhetorical strategies of single moms in academia. Uh, Your dissertation committee is co-chaired by Asia Martinez and Genevieve Garcia de Mueller. Also on your committee is Eileen Schell and Bryce Norquist. A lot of smart folks there. Tell me, how did you, what was the catalyst for this project? What propelled you into your dissertation work and why is it important? Um, so when I started my PhD program a semester into it, I have, my daughter at the time was two and a half and I was going through a divorce and um, trying to navigate coursework. And so I think like a lot of academics do, or a lot of people do, I was trying to find information, like what, what resources are out there that can help me understand how other people have navigated this experience. Um, and I couldn't really find anything. I mean, there's lots of information about, um, academic motherhood. But there's not a lot about within composition and rhetoric, that experience and of people who are um, single mothers um, going through it. And so I decided and then the other thing, too, is there were some single mothers um, that I knew of on campus and. I was fortunate that I was able to form relationships with them and learn from them. And then I also. um I joined a Facebook group at the time that was specifically for single parents in academia, and it was comprised of entirely mothers. And I realized that this um, absence of information was something that a lot of women were experiencing. And so I thought, you know, this is important because um, this is a population on campuses and within universities that are doing so many things to try and navigate higher education, do their work, take care of their children that aren't necessarily considered or thought of. Um, Because a lot of times family-friendly policies, you know, they can benefit single parents and single moms, um, but they're really focused primarily on um, two-parent families. Um, And you could see that even in thinking about the pandemic and some of the rhetoric around how to support 
um, people with children during that time, a lot of it, you know, there were suggestions about to balance the work, sort of scaffold your schedule with your partner, um, which makes assumptions, obviously, about, you know, that you have a partner that you can do those kinds of things with. Or that you work the same shift, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like my wife works night shift. I work day shifted. Right. Complicated. Yeah, exactly. Why is it important? Oh, yeah. Um, it's important because... <laughs> the big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's just a, a small question, right? Um, it, because what happens is... <sighs> really what I'm looking at is like, how can we best support single moms in higher education? And so if we're not working to support single moms in higher education, then we're losing them. Um, and there's already a lot of research about um, mothers and the leaky pipeline in higher academia and how um, women are primarily often found in non-tenure track positions or contingent positions um, or leave academia. Um, and that's one of the things I found in my research and talking to these women is I was surprised by the number of women that said, yeah, I mean, I am not sure that I'm cut out for this. Um, for, I'm, I'm not sure I'm cut out for academia um, and I'm thinking about leaving. And some of those women were, they have, um, they're in, social work or counseling. And so they have um, professional careers that they can fall back on. And that's what they talked about potentially doing because they felt like academia just wasn't considering them or making space for them. So we're going to dive into some more of your dissertation project and talk about some of the publications that you've, that you've worked out of that. But I want to ask first, we know rhetoric and composition as a field, a discipline made up uh, primarily of women. Mm -hmm. So what is rhetoric and composition doing right to support single moms? What are they doing wrong? Mm. Yeah, so I think um, part of what I see rhetoric and composition doing well um, is I think that there are opportunities or sort of space for collaborative publications, you know, that that, that is becoming less, um, I don't want to say stigmatized, but like there's a history, you know, of solely authored publications carrying more weight than collaborative ones. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in sort of the value of collaborative authorship, which is really helpful to single moms um, because they can work with other people and sort of balance out the work. Um, I think other things are if you look at, for example, uh, the Feminisms and Rhetorics Conference, they, um, they, oh not, it's C's, I'm thinking of C's because they have the child care grant yeah. um, that they, they award, um, which is really helpful. I think that, um, and I think the other thing too is so much of the, what programs are doing well depends on the institution. So like f in my experience, you know, my program has always been very accommodating of my teaching schedule um, and really working with that. Um, and they've always been very supportive of, especially this past year with so many things on video, like if my daughter pops in or something like that, which not all schools or programs are so receptive. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, you know, some of the things that maybe 
could be better are um, the that making things like the child care grant normalized across like professional organizations or conferences, um, sort of making clear how child friendly places are, our conferences are, conference spaces, because um, I think it varies. Um, I think some other things too are just like making funding for childcare and working with people's schedules across programs the norm, because I've heard different things about how accommodating um, programs are to those different needs. I want to talk about some of your publications. Um, let's start with one that is forthcoming, um, an article titled A 20-Step Guide to Combating the Invisibility of Graduate Student Parents. And that's going to be an, an upcoming book, What Graduate Students Do, Expertise, Ethics, and Exploitation, edited by Tessa Brown, and going to be made available through the University Press of Kansas Rethinking Careers, Rethinking Academia series. I know you've written about invisible labor for the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics as well. What do you mean when you say invisible rhetoric, invisible uh, labor? And then what is your 20-step guide article about? So when I talk about invisible labor, um, I'm referring to the things that single moms do that aren't necessarily acknowledged or valued or have a place on review documentation or anything that might factor into a promotion or something like that. So for example, um, a lot of single moms that I talk to are supporting student parents and their programs and departments. And so um, like one single mom talked about how she had a, a student who had a baby in her program and she offered that student space in her office to pump if the student needed to or um, working with her to make accommodations. Um, another single mom, so also who was a graduate student, because she was a known and openly single mom in her program, was tasked with or asked, tapped to sort of support other single moms within her program. Um, and that was kind of an informal thing um, that she wasn't necessarily get, getting credit for. Um, or one single mom who she's a, what I term a, um, this isn't my term, but it comes from an article. Um, she's a geographically single mom. And so what that means is her husband is in the military and he's deployed a lot. Um, and so she was teaching and taking care of her kids and she didn't tell anyone um, that her husband was deployed or that she was doing this on her own um, and she was really struggling. And so she was doing all this labor to coordinate her kids' schedules and take care of them and also do her teaching and, and her work. Um, and so that's what I, when I say invisible labor, those are some of the things that I'm referring to. And then the, the, um, the chapter in the edited collection you refer to is about um, kind of about the experience of being a graduate student and um, navigating graduate school without sort of an awareness within the institution or um, like the, the graduate school administrators of the experiences of single parents or just parents more generally. For example, um, when I brought up like concerns about uh, paid family leave or like uh, just matern pater 
parental leave. Um, sort of the the response I got was, well, there's FMLA. Um, New York State now has paid family leave, but the the challenge with those policies is that oftentimes you have to have worked for a certain amount of time to be eligible. Um, And so a lot of times graduate students aren't or can't benefit from it. And so trying to encourage like institutional policies to support um, graduate students. Um, But also like, you know, uh, one of the things when I was having conversations with um, with people about what could be done to support single parents and I, one of the people I spoke with referred to the, um, the nursing rooms as um, milking stations. So just sort of a lack of understanding of um, parental experiences and, you know, because the thing is like a lot of the changes or structures or systems that would support single parents would support parents more broadly. Um, and so just developing an awareness of that. I mentioned you had written about invisible labor for the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics. In fact, you've got a couple of pieces in that journal, one with Genevieve Garcia de Mueller, Anna Cortez, Laura Gonzalez, Cody Jackson, Seth Kine, B.E. Lopez, and Benicio Simmons. The title of that work is Combating White Supremacy in a Pandemic, Anti-Racist, Anti-Capitalist, and Socially Just Policy Recommendations in Response to COVID-19. You've mentioned policy a couple of times, family-friendly policies, policies that could change, that could usurp something like FMLA, which not only have many graduate students not worked enough to accrue that, it also dissipates really quickly. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about your article with those folks in the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics and what conclusions do you draw and propose for higher education? Yeah, so that um, article was something that Genevieve invited me to um, collaborate on. And the section that I focused on was for, uh, we each had a different section. And so mine was focusing on caregivers Mm. Um, and this was early in the pandemic, you know, it was like June, I believe, when we were trying to get it finished. Mm. Um, and so some of the the things that I was focusing on were, um, and this was also at a time when um, I believe it was, I can't remember, I'm trying to remember if it was FSU or University of Florida, but it was a university in Florida. Um, and they had, I don't know if you had heard about this, but they had implemented this policy, which they then um, retracted. But it was basically saying, if you can't get childcare for your kids and your video, your remote working, um, you could lose your job. Yeah. I remember this. I don't remember the university, but I do remember this. Yeah. Um, And so that was very concerning um, because this was also as you know, um, a time when daycares and schools and a lot of childcare places were closed. Um, and so what that, what I suggested, some of the policies I suggested were not just sort of, um, you know, some of the ones were stopping the tenure clock for everyone automatically, um, but also sort of 
making it okay for people to work remotely and making that an option. Because also at the time, that wasn't necessarily an option that was available to everyone. Um, some places you had to apply and be selected, and sometimes childcare responsibilities were not enough to make you eligible for that. Um, so it was also thinking about like just being open to having um, recognizing that like children might come up on a camera. There was another article that got circulated a lot that I believe was in the Chronicle of Higher Education about being sort of having a professional Zoom space. Um, and one of the suggestions was basically hiding evidence that you have children, like don't have a bunch of family photos or children's artwork around your background, um, which implies that it's unprofessional to have to have kids or recognize that you do. And so also like pointing out that um, that it should be okay and that making space for children should be normalized. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other things that I had suggested because I know it was the remote work, I know it was stopping the tenure clock, um, but I feel like it's, you know, this is a, this has been a weird time warp. No, but you know what? Also, I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, this being written almost a year ago, right? You're finishing up. Um, the things that we learned or knew or thought that we knew is the best way to put that probably during those early moments of the pandemic, they've changed, Right. And while the, the suggestions it sounds like you're making can really be foundational as we work for a different academia, um, I wonder if, like, you could talk a little bit about that, like, writing, like, you know, before it really set in what we were working on. For me, anyway, it wasn't in March that I felt that way. I don't know that I'm even asking a question. I think I'm just trying to respond, Alex. I'm so sorry. No, please don't be sorry. You're doing wonderful. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about some of your service. You okay. were you were named assistant managing editor of Exchanges in 2020. Congratulations. That's exciting. Um, what are you going to be doing in your role there, and what excites you about that that work? Yeah, so um, I have been um, in that position uh, working with communicating with authors about their submissions, copy editing articles, um, also putting out a, uh, a CFP for like a new um, recurring special feature section. And so um, that. That's part, cool. Yeah, that was really exciting. And so. Um, even though I wrote it, I want to make sure I have the language right. And so I want to, I'm going to pull that up because it's recent and it's for, um, it's for graduate students. Uh, and it's a, I think it, I mean, obviously I think it's great because I helped write it, but, <laughs> um, so the, the section is really about, is it okay if I talk about it for a minute? Okay. Um, so the the special it's a special feature section it's called perspectives and it's basically an opportunity for graduate students um, and new faculty scholars and and those who have pursued all academic careers um, to offer advice about their experiences in higher education because I noticed like there were so many things that I didn't know when I started um, my program and that like you know one of those like 
if I had known then what I know now. Um, so kind of thinking about like how to what prepare for comp exams, navigating coursework, working on your dissertation, presenting at conferences. Like I remember when I started my program, um, the Watson conference was that year and everybody was talking about Watson. And I was like, what the heck? What is Watson? <laughs> um, and and then the same thing, like uh, the CFP websites, like the um, the 10 girl site, I hadn't known about that until I think it was my the end of my second year. Um, and so I was I, I wish I had known about that sooner. Um, what so is that for folks that don't know? The URL is 10 girl 10 grrl .com. Um, But it's I think her name is Tracy Gardner. She's um, in professional and technical writing, I believe. Yes. Um, and she lists CFPs not only for publications, but also for um, for conferences and um, for different awards. Um, and she lists them on Twitter, too. She's really good about it. But it's really a, a nice place to see all of the things that are coming up with the hyperlinks in them. It's curated very well. So I like that a lot. And so the, the special feature section is about graduate students or recent grads offering advice to others about different things related to their experiences. And it's very open in terms of the style and the format and, you know, um, how many people are authoring it and all those kinds of things. Um, so that's been a primary thing I've been doing. And one of the, I think the other part of the question you had asked me is something about what I enjoyed doing there, what I was excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I've really liked so far is because Exchanges is a publication that is for undergraduates and graduates, uh, I really like being able to see the kind of work that people are putting out there, but especially the undergraduates, um, what kind of publications and research are undergraduates doing related to um, composition and rhetoric. And so that's been really nice because I remember as an undergraduate, you know, the, I think the primary space that I had known to publish was young scholars and writing. And so it's cool to sort of learn about this other space and to think about how I might be able to encourage my own students in the future to submit there. I, for one, think that the work Exchanges does is outstanding. And I didn't know that you were on uh, the team there until I was over looking over your CV for the interview. That's awesome. They're great. The people there are great. Um, it's really nice to work with Julie and Brian and Al. And, yeah. So what else do you want to talk about? Um, there's a ton more to cover, but I thought I've been leading for a bit. What are something you want to talk about? I knew you were going to ask this question because I heard you ask pe other people in your interviews. Um, I think one of the things I know we've talked a lot about my research, um, but I think one of the things I really want to emphasize or like, yeah, emphasize is that a lot of times people think that supporting single parents is going to cost extra money or take a lot of resources. But what I've found in my research is like for many single moms, they just want someone to ask how they're doing and actually care about the answer. And I think that's something that a lot of us want as humans. Um, but I think especially because of the pandemic, many single moms 
and people are feeling like very lonely and isolated. Um, and I want to emphasize this because when I did the survey about I, and I asked, you know, any single parent, but I only got responses from single moms about their experiences during the pandemic. I was really struck by how lonely they were and how much they were struggling and how they felt like people didn't care about them. Um, and also how things that like some of us might take for granted, like going out to get, you know, milk, which I think was more of us, you know, sort of, um, earlier in mid pandemic, because there were some places and these were the responses came from not just the United States, but also Canada. And then um, there was other places, not just, you know, other country, the responses from other countries where uh, grocery stores weren't allowing you to bring more than one person into the store. And so to get a gallon of milk, you can't bring your kid. Um, I guess what I really just want people to know is that sometimes the support for everybody is just reaching out and asking how people are and um, and what they need and really caring about and wanting to follow through with a response. And um, and that's that's something that I I wrote about a little bit in the uh, the DR, the most recent DRC blog carnival. Mm. Um, where so it's a little bit more it's a little bit clearer there just to give a pub um you're talking about nobody to share the burden the importance of empathy for single moms through the digital rhetoric collaborative yeah. and that's the word that i was and that's the word i was thinking about empathy when you were responding it's not just reaching out but caring about the answer um, i think that that's important for a lot of us to hear I mean, specifically for someone like me who doesn't have kids, who's not a woman, um, who has not faced the uh, invisible labor that you and so many others face in higher education. Thanks, Alex, for talking to me today. This was an exceptional conversation, and I cannot underscore enough times how critical your work is uh, right now and to the future of our disciplines. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before I let you off here to enjoy the rest of your day? No, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and making space for this. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alex Hansen. Don't forget to submit your nominations for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award highlights graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. To be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2020-2021 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. 
contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship, whether refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. To nominate someone for this award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, and a 200-word bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the above criteria. Use the subject line, Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 15, 2021. Self-nominations are welcome. For more information about the TBR podcast, Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out at our website. You can email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com or visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. I got that backwards. I want to thank everyone who's donated so far to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. We really are quite grateful of your generosity. You can find more information about our nonprofit if you can donate pinned to our Twitter page at the Big Rep. Don't forget about the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming up in August. The theme, Contending with Misinformation in the Classroom and the Community. And we're going to announce our keynote speaker before the end of Season 4. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a 5-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this week's podcast is brought to you by Corey Anchors, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Check them out on Insta at HeyBuddyCC or HeyBuddyCC.com. Rob Walker, poet and analog by nature. <laughs>